Hey, it's Mike. Welcome to Intergalactic, the podcast about the greatest sci-fi movies and TV of all time. I'm here with Clyde Haynes. What is up, Clyde? Hey, Mike. Excited to talk about some Stargate. Yes, Clyde and I are back to continue our Essential Stargate series. We're covering some of the best episodes of Stargate SG-1, and today we're reviewing the 11th episode of Season 1, Bloodlines. It, the episode's not as scary as I made it sound. It's more like no eh, Bloodlines. How, how would you pronounce this episode, Clyde? I'd be like, Bloodlines. Mm. Yeah, it's a little contemplative. Okay, well, before we dive into uh, Bloodlines, let's do a thing. Okay. So you know how I I joined one of these Stargate fan groups on Facebook, and then every time I log into Facebook, it's like, hey, here are these posts from 10 other Stargate fan groups that you're not a part of. Why don't you engage with those? I'm like, no, thank you, Facebook. But there was one that caught my eye. Um, and the name of the uh, of the Stargate fan group was Stargate fans are the best and we're here and this is another group and let's have a good time. That was the name of the group. And the the post was, hey, everybody, what would happen if the gold possessed a wraith? Wow. What, what do you think, Clyde? Would that be a good idea? Should the gold possess a wraith? Could the gold possess a wraith? Vice versa? No, you can't do vice versa. Only the I mean, it's like a parasitic entity infecting a parasitic entity. Are are the wraith parasitic? Well, they have to. In order for them to live, they have to suck the life force out of out sure. of someone else. Sure. But the question sure. is, would a gold symbiote, which typically gives you long life and improved power to a race that's already powerful, would that still cure them? Would that cure them of needing to suck the life out of someone? Oh, yeah. How would they eat? Because the whole thing about a wraith is, a, a wraith is where the gold want power and domination. The wraith are trying to just, they're hungry. Like They just want to eat. They're just, yeah. They just want to eat, right? They want to eat, then they hibernate. Right, they're not. They're not necessarily looking to kill everyone. It's about a food supply, right? So that would be interesting. So the question is, what? You know, man, I'm a dork. Um, but it's like, <laughs> what with a gold symbiote? What impact would a gold symbiote have on the metabolism of a wraith? <laughs> that would be the the general question. Would the wraith need to to use his sucky hand to to eat yes. people? I'm not sure. I will say this: for the gould, this is the move, right? This is the mm-hmm. move. Possess the wraith, make them ten times as powerful, and then you don't have to trick anybody into thinking that you're an Egyptian god and have them follow you. You can just subjugate them sight unseen it's like oh shit here comes a wraith with the power of the gold yeah i'll do whatever you say just don't kill me like this would be the most powerful like maybe the replicators might be able to take them down but even then i think a gold possessed wraith like a whole hive ship of gold possessed wraith that's something that you don't want to fight right i would just haul ass away from that battle like yes we kind of saw this a little bit 
in one of the episodes we covered on this podcast where we saw a gould that possessed uh, Unas, the monster, the that was voiced by James Earl Jones. And apparently mm-hmm. that was like the first race that the gould possessed. Um, and I was like, why doesn't, why don't the gould always just possess monsters? Like, that would be great. The monsters are already scary and powerful. They make them more scary and powerful than they can conquer whoever they want. The thing about the gold was they they were focused on being godlike. So it was there was some fear in that, but they wanted to be worshipped. Yeah. Right? They have ego. Right. Where the Wraith are looking at the as humans as cattle. Right? Where I just need to pin you or like chickens. Like just let me pin you up and then when I'm ready, come by and get you. Right? Like that's a that's a very different. So I think that it, it, you wouldn't have this proliferation like when we see the right because there's 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 a lot of right right it's all about just like how do we feed everybody and i think they'd run into the same problem they ran into is there enough people to eat yeah um i don't remember in the episodes that we've seen so far but do the gold like eat like do you ever see one eating a hot dog or anything <laughs> Is it like, or do they just not have to eat? I don't know. Yeah, no. My I guess think is they, they would have to, have to eat. eat. Yeah, they do eat, but it's it's just it's like, yeah, they do have to eat. They still have to eat. So if they possessed a wraith, they would probably have to eat humans with the hand. Like that wouldn't change, right? That's my guess. Right. Okay. So then there would be a pro- that would be a problem because they would want to keep enough humans around to you know, for their food source, but then they would have to hibernate and come back. I guess they would just be a scarier wraith, but then they would have to hibernate. My guess is because they're so powerful, they'd get drunk on their own power and just kill off all humans and then eventually kill themselves off because they have no more, you know, food source. You know, maybe it's not, maybe it's not the move for, for the ghoul to possess I mean, the wraith. Yeah. I mean, you you then, I mean, it'd be interesting because then the question would be: Would the sarcophagus kind of sustain them and oh. replenish them? Like this could yeah. get interesting, but <laughs> I think it's a bad idea. It's a bad idea for for humans. Definitely, we would all die. They would like like if a gold somehow got to the Pegasus galaxy, possessed a bunch of wraith, and could probably figure out how to get back to their own galaxy, and already knows how to get to Earth. Yeah, we're all fucked. Goodbye. Yeah. We would have to team up with the replicators, and that's not happening. This is the dorkiest conversation I've ever had, Clyde. Mine, too. And that's saying something, Mike, because we've had some (laughs) dorky conversations. This is definitely on next level. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're thinking about this too much without really thinking about it. So let's dive into this episode. Oh, wait, before we do that, um, listener, let us know what you think would happen if a bunch of gold possessed a bunch of wraith. Would it be good for the economy? Let us know. All right. Bloodlines, Season 1, Episode 11. Uh, This episode came out in October 10th, 1997. Aired on Showtime. Story by Mark Saraceni. Teleplay by Jeffrey F. King. Directed by Mario Azopardi, who directed a shit ton of Stargate. Um, This is the one that precedes Torment of Tantalus, the one we reviewed just recently. Just right off the bat, man, I really like this episode. Um, so far of the season one episodes we've done, I loved the pilot, two-hour pilot. 
I really enjoyed the episode right after that, um, the one where Kowalski gets possessed. Mm-hmm. And those have been my favorites so far. And this is probably number three. I thought this was a really good emotional story. And it's probably no surprise to you that I really liked it because it's all about Teal'c and Teal'c's backstory and the emotional push and pull Teal'c has with his commitment to his family, but also his commitment to not just SG-1, but his commitment as a warrior to save several universes from the threat of the gold and his heart's kind of torn in, in two or three different places. And Christopher Judge, I think, does a good job like selling that that heartache and that emotion. I thought this was really solid, man. I want more Teal'c episodes. Tell me we get more like Teal'c backstory as we go on. Yeah, I'll spoiler alert, you know, I think uh Tony Amendola as Braytac shows up and yes. somebody immediately goes, sign that guy up for more episodes. <laughs> so um, you know, we, we definitely will get more more tilt backstories. I, I agree. I thought what was really interesting about this episode is you've got this sense of Tilk has this sense of um duty to kind of the universe, the culture, if you will, right? Like he look and go, I'm serving a false God. My people are enslaved and I am uniquely positioned to change that fact. Right. Versus the impact that it has on my family. Right. Now this is a, this is a, you know, I think people in general deal with this on a small scale all the time. It's like, you know, I, I think about cultures where it's a responsibility of someone to go out and earn a living that then takes care of not just their immediate family, but their extended family too. And versus kind of just being in your tight little nuclear family and enjoying life, right? Like I think Tilka's in a situation even greater than that where he's looking going like, look, people are enslaved all over the universe and I can do something about that. And it comes at a cost. That's a dynamic. And then on top of that, he's got this relationship with the SGC, Stargate Command, and trying to figure out, okay, well, how much of, of them, how much of myself do I share with them? I mean, I, I thought it was great. I, again, I, I do feel like, I hate to say it, I do feel like the writing is a little first season-ish. Mm-hmm. Right, meaning that it's like, oh, we're going to write. It's going to be pretty good. I think they get to a point where a lot more eyes are on it on some of these episodes, and it's kind of like they they come across as a bit more polished. The other thing is that I always have to remind myself is at the time, this is pretty groundbreaking for sci-fi, right? Because if you think about it, kind of in the '90s, from a sci-fi series. I think we really have Star Trek and Star Wars kind of in the space. I don't think that we've got Firefly yet. And I don't think we've had like, what is it? A uh, Farscape or which Battlestar battle. We definitely haven't had Battlestar yet, but I, I think there's some, I, I think when we're looking at this, this is a, this is a, a trendsetter, right? A pioneer in its space. And so I give it some grace a little bit, but this I thought was a phenomenal episode. I've got a couple of nits that I would pick. 
But overall, I loved it. I love the introduction of Braytac. I love seeing Tilk. I love seeing Tilk come face to face with what his decision has cost his loved ones. Right? Yeah. When you talk about the some sketchy writing, are you talking about dialogue? Are you talking about the fact that it seems a little shoehorn that Teal'c suddenly has a a family that he needs to get back to, and on the day that they're trying to remove Teal'c's larva gold, he suddenly realizes he has to go back home to make sure his son doesn't get the the larva implanted. Like that seems a little. A little TV-esque, you know, a little convenient, but what do you, what do you mean by the sketchy writing? I rolled with all that. I, I rationalized it as you were tormenting the gold, so some memories kicked up, mm. reminded you, hey, here's what's going on. You haven't mentioned it before. Okay, I can go with that. Till's kind of keeping this close to the vest because if SGC had thought about, hey, Till's got a wife and a family back home, he becomes vulnerable if you threaten them. So can we really trust him where he has his vulnerabilities? Where if he's just by himself, you feel like, okay, we can kind of control the situation. So I get why we may not know about them. My issue was he talked very much about his son and less so about his wife. Mm -hmm. And when he showed up, there seemed to be quite a bit of tension between them. That is never explained. Were they separated? Were they like like the dynamic between uh, was it Dreyak? Dreyak, uh, yeah, Sally Richardson, yeah. yes, who's awesome in this and everything else that she's in, yeah, and literally one of my first crushes ever. Um, right on. But she's amazing, and and not just in front of the camera. Like she's a phenomenal actress. She was. She, if you watched Eureka, she played Allison Blake on Eureka and just did a phenomenal job. But like behind the camera, she is a phenomenal director. Um, she's recently directed, I think, a, a couple episodes of like Star Trek as well. Like she's just like her name pops up all the time. You've, now that you've seen it, you'll see it all the time. Um, but it felt like a little light, like her character's backstory and where the conflict between her and Tilk was and her anger at him. Like we're left to kind of assume what it was, but not really explain it. And like he seemed really focused on Ryak and um, and not so much Dreyak. So. That's that's true. That was a little odd because he goes back. He sees her. He mis he mistook her for a uh, uh, one of the evil priests, and he attacks her. And he realizes, oh, this is my wife. He never says ex wife or former wife or former mm-hmm. lover. It seems like the episode just wants to sustain the conflict to what's going on in this small plot, so you don't get the backstory. You get that she's upset that he betrayed Apophis and kind of put a black mark on the family when he left because they're the family of a traitor. So mm-hmm. Apothesis people blew up their house, sent them to go live in poverty in the woods. And uh, that's where the son got sick. And now she's blaming Teal'c for all this because she doesn't truly understand why he left or why he betrayed his God, right? And it's unclear 
whether or not they had any issues before all that happened. It kind of feels like mm-hmm. they did because Teok doesn't seem to give a shit about <laughs> about her very much. He just cares about his son. Yeah, right. it is odd. There, there's no like, I love you. Like, let me explain what happened. Like, hey, I'm so glad to see. Like, there's there's no sense of that. It felt like there was tension between them way before this. Uh, it's, yeah, I don't care about this spoiler, but does she come back? Is that relationship explained a little more? She does a little bit better later. Yeah, yeah. So okay, all right. I have to remember. I can't remember all the ins and outs, but yes, it does explain. Like this, there. This is not the last time we will see any of those three three guest stars. I'm not. Sh- I have to think about that. I have to think about whether or not because I know we see and hear about Dreak. Um, the question is: Is it Sally Richardson? Mm. So maybe someone else plays her because her career shortly after this got pretty hot. Like she got yeah. on Eureka as a as a main character, then quickly mm-hmm. started started directing stuff. And yeah, did let me ask you this. Yeah, did the reveal of Teal'c abandoning his family damage the character for you at all with this? Episode? Not even a little bit. No, no. It didn't for me because I, you know, I'm I'm seeing it as uh, I'm seeing the behind the scenes stuff. You know, if I'm a writer on this show, this makes a really potent episode. Oh, let's make Teal have a family that he's, you know, feels guilty for leaving, and he goes back and he has all these feelings about, and he's torn in a few places. That's a really good drama. But if I'm just like a fan, not thinking about that, watching the episode, uh, I kind of got to do some like headcanon of like, why would he? not tell them goodbye or at the end, why would he not bring them across the Stargate with them back to earth? You know, I know the real answer to that is he wouldn't bring them back because that would be clunky for the writing, you know, for future episodes. And it gets tied in a bow at the end when he's like, one day I'll be back when I'm done fighting these bad guys. See you later. And that works for the episode as a whole. I'm just kind of like, this is, this is a little I, I feel like it's a little damaging for Teal to leave his family for that to be a reveal. So you said no. So why does it work for you? B, it's like the greater good, right? Like what we're seeing is, and again, the word that he used was slavery, right? Yeah. For him, it was it was short, like all of this happened in the minute, right? Like he had to make a decision, spur of the moment. There wasn't this moment where he was like, yo. Can let me like I want to go with you guys, but uh, let me call my wife and see if she's cool with this, and then I'll get back to you. Right? That's that's not what happened, and so he made this, you know. It, and and again, context matters. So it's not like he was like, "Hey, yo, we're gonna go tear it up in the galaxy. Y'all got cool toys. We just gonna live it up and we gonna party." Yo, I'm leaving the family. I ain't even gonna. T- I'm, I'm just out. That's not what happened. He's looking going, Apophis has enslaved like thousands, maybe millions of my people. He utilized my people as incubators, as warriors. Like we are fodder for him. And I think there's a, I think that the episode, so as an example, if you go back to like, you, you mentioned the first two episodes, I think it's the, maybe the first episode of the second episode where they reveal um, and introduce us to the iris, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you remember what happens when they first show us the iris, Apophis just starts sending Jaffa 
through the iris to their due for like hours. Yeah. Right. Just, just, just sending them through. Bugs on a windshield. Yeah. Right. And so when you think about that, Teal's understanding that the way the Gua'uld like view the Jaffa is just like cannon fodder, right? There's no respect. There's no symbiosis, right? Like it's just like it's fodder. And so he's looking like my people are enslaved. My people are looking at this. And again, I am uniquely in a position where I can do something. And so it's because of that call that maybe I give him some slack or I go, I don't think it damages him. So it's like, it's like it's wartime and he's a soldier and he's off at the war. Right. And he's doing whatever he can to ultimately look and go protect my family. He was like, if he's looking at it going, this decisions I make may put my son in a situation where he doesn't have to follow my footsteps. Because right now, he's looking at me and going, I want to be like my dad. Like, that's what he would aspire to be. And so he's going, I can prevent that. So no, in this situation, I look and go, the way it's done, like, to me, I go, was there any other option? Right? And what they told us was, it's not like he got them, was like, hey, by the way, I need to go get my family. He didn't tell them he had a family because he didn't think they would trust him. And if we think about the way they treated him at first, they absolutely Mm -hmm. did not trust him and they wanted to experiment on him. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. They looked at him as a prisoner of war rather than a defector. Those are the pieces that pull together when you ask, you know, did it, did he lose anything for me? No, I kind of think it was partly heroic or at least movie heroic, right? I just expected that that reunion with Dreyak to be more soap opera drama where like she sees him and is like, she can't believe, like, she's like, oh, my goodness. And she's beating against him. And then finally they embrace. She's like, I missed you. And I look like that's kind of, I expected more of that. Or if they're going to go this, like, I hate you route at some point to explain, like, it it would have been great if Jack was like, hmm, frosty reunion, huh? And then there's some yeah. explanation, like, she never wanted me to be a Jaffa. Like, she's, you know, we, you know, like something to explain what happened right now i do believe that we'll get some more backstory later again this feels very season one at some point in season two it'll be explained and i think or or later on much more of this will be explained yeah some hint of an explanation for why they're so icy towards each other Mm -hmm. other than the fact that he had to leave for to fight would have been great not a whole explanation because it does feel kind of like there's a lot of tension there. Um, however, I do like it because it it makes things feel lived in, right? It makes it it makes the world feel like, oh, there's a lot going on before we met these characters. Like they have uh, obviously their husband and wife, they have a history, but it's not just it, it's not just an afterthought. Like there's tension in their relationship that we don't know about that hopefully will be explored later. And that's what the show does, man. It drops in every, almost every character you see um, drops in some kind of like uh, backstory to them or you feel that they're lived in and there's a whole story that you can go explore with them or that will will build upon later in the series. Of course, there's like 10, 10 seasons of this. So um, there's plenty of opportunity to mine all these characters that come in from the different worlds for new stories um that's one of the great things about this show right it went on for so long and there's so many different worlds that they visit and there's just so much potential for story um 
but I love that what the thing I love about this story was that it was so personal for one of my favorite characters. And I think Christopher Judge just really nails it. Like there's a lot of emoting he does in this episode, but he does it. He never breaks character. Teal'c mm-hmm. is reserved, but strong and not loquacious. And that makes him kind of mysterious, but respectable and powerful, right? And he remains all those things throughout this episode, even though he's being torn apart from the inside out. And in one scene, literally, where they tear out that disgusting ghoul from his stomach and put it in his kid. And Christopher Judge just nails it, man. Um, I, you know, anything that you throw at this guy with this character, I think I'm, I'm, I'm ready for. I will say, you've heard me talk about how disgusted I am when I see these gold snakes. And there were just way, there was just way too many shots, close up shots of these things coming out of people's stomachs, um, wiggling around on the floor, gasping for air. Like it was, this is probably the worst, grossest episode of SG1 I've ever seen. And I was, having to to look away many times these things are ugly as fuck i get that i get that that's the point but man they really made them ugly they're disgusting like i know i'm supposed to feel complicated like uh, i'm supposed to have some conflicting feelings when daniel jackson like you know just shoots up that that aquarium full of gold babies you know i was like oh that makes him just as bad as a gold but i was like not kill 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 them all look some of them got out of the tank they're they're wiggling around shoot those as well stomp on them kill them i hate these things it's gross yeah it's it's i look at this and i think this was a show that was made for cable right and at a time where you know 1997 1998 this was premium cable it's almost like there's ex- this expectation that you have to make it a little, a, a little extra, a little something, and so I think mm. what they did was yep. they created a, you know, a symbiote that was not ready for prime time. Right. I I think it's just what I mean by that is I don't know that if you were building and creating this show originally for a sci-fi channel, I think that the I think you would have made it prettier. I think you would have made it more more aesthetically pleasing to the masses, right? Because you're not trying to scare people, right? Like to your point, it's probably eliciting the the effect that it's supposed to have. It's disgust, like oh my goodness, this is terrible. I think if, if you're on regular television, if you're on, you know, you you make it softer. You know, you don't want it as scary, as horrifying, as disgusting. Yeah, it's it's just gross. Um, what did you think of that scene where Daniel Jackson decides to murder those ghoul larvae? Like Carter, I thought he was like, no, an don't... idiot. Yeah. Well, here's the deal: if you're trying to be covert, then mm. you don't mm-hmm. want to leave. That's not what you want to do, right? Like again, that was my first thought. Yeah. The the thought is like, man, you have an opportunity to get one and then get out of here, and they'll never know you were there. Right. For the most part, you can get it. They won't know you're there. And that if they don't know you're there, that means you could probably come back. That means they're not going to lock these things up in the future and you can come get exactly. more. Right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and it's one of those things where if if you if they needed one, 
and you hadn't killed the rest of them, you needed an extra one. Like you, like I mean, that's weird. But like you never know when you're gonna need extra gold, right? Just like in this episode, they needed an extra they gold. They extra. just happened to have like, in the coffee thermos. So part part of me was like, well, you brought one. Why don't you grab two? Would they have been in there like I, fighting each other? I don't know. But like, I think she she just didn't want to put her hand in that tank. Poor Carter. I mean, I, I don't blame I her. Wouldn't. No, if they bite you, like anyway, um, yeah, no. So I just I thought it was a little bit reckless. Like I get the point. Like each one of those was going to be a potential enemy someday, but and, also, and also take over a human, like, and also take over a human, right? But if you think about someone like Ryak, right? Like at some point, you've just killed a Jaffa, mm-hmm. a Jaffa who is waiting for symbiote implantation. Right. So it's just, it's one of those things where I look and go, I see what you did. I think discretion would have been better. Yeah. Because you could have come back with the whole group, like SGs two, three, four, five, six, and seven, and got the whole tank. Yeah. Whoever those people are. Right. Whoever those people are. We never hear. We'll just be like <laughs> SG 11 and SG 17. Yeah. We know there's a bunch of them. Because the point would be if you're trying to, experiment on one you know it's better than experimenting on one experimenting on four right like oops yeah like killed this one all have when sg1 goes through the stargate and they have all that gear on their back mm-hmm. you know if carter has a thermos i'm sure jackson has a thermos right exactly carter pours out her two percent milk or whatever it is she drinks and then she puts the gold in there. Jackson pours out his tang or whatever he's drinking, right? Put another gold in there. You got two. It's all good. His green, his chai latte or whatever he is. It's- yeah, there you go. Uh, ice chai latte. Um, I did like that for story reasons and for character reasons. I like the idea that, you know, Daniel is there. He's like, yeah, it's will be more covert if I don't lay waste to these ghouls with my machine gun right now and we'll get away and it's probably not a good idea to execute children of my enemy no matter what it kind of makes me a monster but he chooses to do it anyway because he's so fueled by revenge and hate for what they've done to his wife right and i think that plants some pretty interesting seeds for the future like we see where Daniel Jackson is in his head and his heart when it comes to fighting these ghouls, when it comes to um, what the possession of Cherie has done to him. And it gives the character more darkness, more dynamic, and it makes it more, uh, it makes it more compelling to see what's going to, what's going to happen. Like, is he going to come around? Is he going to go crazy and just start murdering a bunch of more ghouls? Is, how is he going to overcome these feelings? It's cool. It's cool. It was a great character choice. Yeah, I think I think what we're sh- just starting to see is really the militarization of scientist Dr. Daniel Jackson, right? Because mm-hmm. if you think about it, we're in episode like 10 or 11 now. If you go back to like episode one, handing him a weapon, he would have been like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I'm dropping it. Ah, ah. Right? But now he took it, clearly took shot, only needed to pull the trigger once. Like, clearly he's gotten better. and. Before, even in the movie, there was a sense of like, wait, no, I'm a scientist. Like, there's this opportunity to really to explore and just learn. 
And now he's starting to understand, no, we're, this is, this is military. We're at, we're at war. Like this is significant and I need to act and move accordingly. I like that. Like, I like that he's growing up in front of our eyes. So before I watched this episode, you told me, man, Tommy Amendola's in this. He plays Braytac. He becomes a badass recurring character. This was a great introduction to this guy. I love how he's like a human woman and this weak-ass nerd are the great uh, warriors of Earth that people have been talking about. I don't think so. And he's just so full of bluster and life and he's such a good friend to teal. Like you just, I kind of wanted him to be part of the crew, but I love that he's around and you've told me we're going to see him again. And every time Tommy, every time Tony Amendola shows up on something like whether it's Dexter or he was in once upon a time, he's in the, the James Wan horror universe, uh, and Annabelle and the Yorona movie. Uh, he was in Star Trek Voyager. This guy's in everything. Like, he just has such an awesome presence. And I love that he's an o- he, he's already an older actor in this in this series, too. Because Jackson, uh, not Jackson, but O'Neill is kind of worried that he knocked him over because he's supposed to be like 130 years old. But he's so spry. Like, at the end, he, like, takes out, like, five priests and the guard on his own. The guy just shows up everybody in this in this episode and just a, probably the best um, guest character we've had so far. Would you agree? Yes, I would agree with that. Um, he, he's just amazing. He shows up. And I don't know if they knew ahead of time, but the minute that he you, you see him in action, you had to tell yourself, no, 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 we need more of that guy. Mm-hmm. We We definitely need more of that guy. And I... I just kind of looked it up. He's he's going to end up, he's doing like 26, 27 episodes on Star Trek. Yes. yes so yes. when I say we're going to see him again, we're definitely going to see him. Like he, he, he gets his own storyline at some point. Like we get to know more about him. It's, it's good stuff. So he, I love it when you have a guest actor who kind of steals the spotlight a little bit and you're like, man, yeah. um, he to me is Tilk's, version of a general hammond for jack right mm-hmm. he's that the that wise voice that's a little grisly and sometimes hard to to deal with but without them our beloved characters wouldn't be who they are right and i think it would have been very interesting for us to see kind of four of those mainstays around and maybe we do a little bit i would say for daniel jackson it was probably catherine mm-hmm. um i think for samantha carter it might be her father that we will get in- introduced to much later maybe at the end of the season we'll see I, I can't quite remember but there are these forces in our characters lives that pop up from time to time that give wisdom and insight and kind of give us clues to who these, these people really are. And Braytac is that for Tilk. You mentioned, I want to get back to Braytac. I have a few questions, but you mentioned Hammond. And even though he's not in the bulk of this episode, you get the full spectrum of Hammond in this episode, which I really love. Like at the beginning, you know, Teal'c explains to O'Neill reluctantly, like, 
I have a son, I have a wife, I got to go back. They're going to stick the fucking snake in them. I got to stop it. And Jack's like, all right, I'll figure this out. You should have told us this before, but whatever. And so he tells um, the rest of the team and they're all in. They're all like, let's go. Let's help Teal'c save his son. Let's do this. But they had to give it. They had to get the mission approved by Hammond, right? Just like everything. And so they lie to him. They're like, well, we need to go. And apparently there's, they don't tell him about the son or the wife. And they're like, it's a good strategic move. There's a bunch of larval gold that we can, we can steal from this planet. There's also, Teal tells us there's some other dissenters we can talk to. The gold are only as powerful as their worshippers. So we turn them against them. Then we have a strategic advantage, right? That all makes sense. But uh, Hammond's not buying it, right? He's like, no, there's got to be something more to this. So when he finds out about the son and the wife, obviously he's pissed and he sees that there's a potential for Teal to be compromised, as anybody would. Um, and then all of a sudden, all that gets interrupted because Teal is trying to get through the gate, right? And just go on his own. And there's a great scene where Hammond, already just being the hard-lined safety first military um, general that he is up to this point is trying to stop him. And, you know, they even pull guns on him and they're like, I can't let you go because you have too much information about this base, about this planet, about our team, about our mission. And I can't allow that to fall into the wrong hands. And you're already compromised. But he sees that Teal'c is so determined to save his family, and that's his only motivation. And Hammond, being the more uh, fleshed out kind of, he's growing a heart over these past few episodes I've seen, Hammond, and he's learned to really trust Teal'c, and he wants to do right by him because he understands the, the unique situation that he's in, right? We have this asset who is literally an alien who knows so much more about our enemy than we do, he has to protect that asset. That's Teal'c. But with the performance, you also see that Hammond cares about and wants to protect Teal'c and wants to help him. So on the spot, he authorizes the mission. And he's like, you know what? You're part of my team. You're part of my family. We're going to get this done for you and we're going to help you. That's such a great like little arc for Hammond in this episode where he's just first he's pissed and then he comes around like his heart wins out. Yeah. So did you like uh, Hammond's role in this episode? You know, I loved it because I think what we saw in Hammond with Hammond was, you know, he's going to put the safety of humanity first. Like he's he always sees through the BS. Right. Like he's like, I'm I, I, I that smells funny to me. Right. But he's got a heart. He's not just this blustery general that's like, no, and becomes this enemy. He's a part of the team. And like you said, I like the word you use, family. As he's going, he's looking, going, look, here are the rules. Like, we've got to think, these are things that we're not just going to ignore these. Because I think SG-1 is really good at ignoring the big picture for what's going on in the moment. Right? Like, and we talk about this all the time. It is blowing up you know when we talk about unas it's blowing up thor's hammer right because of you know short-term thinking it is you know shooting the tank of larva gold like sg1 is really good at the short-time thinking 
Hammond is the strategic thinker. He's the big picture thinker. But he he's not one of those generals that don't care about his people. And so at the end of the day, he does a really phenomenal job of, of telling you all the strategic reasons and all the reasons why you shouldn't do this and then preparing to do it because it's what his people's need. I love it. You said earlier that Braytac is uh, a mentor to Teal'c, kind of like the way Hammond mm-hmm. is to, to O'Neill uh, a bit in these episodes. So it seems that Braytac is one of the best military leaders of the Jaffa who fight for the gold, but he's clearly aware that the gold are false gods. So is he like a, is he a double agent or does he just not have support to act against them or start a rebellion? Like what's the deal with this guy? Cause he's the guy who taught Teal'c about, Hey, you shouldn't trust these masters of ours. Cause they're not really gods. Right. Yeah. I think it's like anything else. It is. What can you do? Right. Like you are aware that, there's something wrong, but you can't really do anything about it. And so you kind of bide your time. And so I think he's not so much a double agent, but he's dissatisfied with the machine, but there's nothing he can do about the machine until SG-1 shows up and gives him some hope, right? So the best thing he can do is try and sow little seeds of critical thinking and questioning in the people around him. Got it. And I really, I really want to see this guy like, lead the revolution on Chulak, you know, along with Teal can just fucking guns blazing, get rid of all these cool motherfuckers. Whatever they have in store for this guy, I'm there. And the fact that he's, you told me he's lined up for like 20 some odd episodes, uh, that just Mm -hmm. makes me so happy. Somebody who's not, unfortunately, I just looked this up, who's not lined up for 20 episodes is Sally Richardson. This Um, This is the only episode, according to Stargate fandom, uh, the website is the only episode where she plays Dreyak. Um, the character shows up in a few more episodes, but she's replaced by an actor named Brooke Parker. Yeah, she she went on to star in Eureka, so she wasn't in this anymore. Too bad. So apparently, the character comes back in the episodes Family mm-hmm. and Threshold. So we'll look forward to those. Um, I guess one of the Critiques I have of this episode. Again, it's a Teal'c focused episode, and then you have a couple guest stars. There's not a lot of room for Daniel and especially Carter to do much. Again, right. just like last the last episode, like Carter really gets the the shaft here. She doesn't really do much at all, so that's a bummer. Hopefully, they can really work out those A story B story dynamics a little better as the show goes on. Um, you said you had some nits to pick. On this episode, you might have dropped a few of those already, but anything else? Yeah, I mean, that's you, you've kind of covered it. It was, you know, what's the backstory of kind of Dreyak and Tilk? And then I thought the kind of B plot with Sam and, and Daniel was okay. Again, I think they're working it out. I absolutely, it didn't bother me. I didn't go, oh man, that's a terrible storyline. Um, I, I just I also know like I have the ability to see in the future and know oh they mature these storylines much better right they they find their footing and so I think that's kind of it so that's part of it so I'm like ah uh, okay All right and I I I constantly go back and think about man Star Trek the Next Generation had some terrible B plots 
in their in their first season. And so this is this is sci-fi trying to figure it out because to your point, they're creating an entire world from their imagination. And I love what this gave us, much like Thor's hammer, is they give us this hint of this other culture that we can spend the next 10 years explaining. Right. So now we've got the Jaffa and Braytac and, and a possible rebellion, right? Oh my goodness. That's going to get fun and interesting. All right. Yeah. This was a good setup episode, but it was also a good self-contained episode where the, the story of the episode was compelling and good. And it really filled in a lot of interesting gaps for a character like Teal'c. And you don't often get that. Sometimes you, sometimes the, the episodic story is good, but there's not a lot of um, uh, world building. Sometimes the world building is great, but the episodic story is not great. Here, I think you had the best of both worlds, especially for a 90s um, first season uh, sci-fi show, right? So yeah, yeah, this, this episode was pretty good. Um, the next episode we're going to cover on our list I've researched this one a little bit, and some people say it's one of the horniest episodes of SG-1 ever. It's uh, Hawthor. <laughs> season 1, episode 13, Hathor. Is it Hawthor or Hathor? Hathor. It's Hathor. Um, Hathor. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. This is probably the horniest episode in the entire franchise. I, listen, I think that for whatever reason, um, I'm going to blame men being men. Uh Pretty much in every series, you have an episode where it's just like, man, I don't know what was going on when the writers got together. Maybe they had been alone too long, sequestered, writing scripts. But there's definitely some vibes they were getting out in in, in on the pages. Um, it's just a question of when it's coming, and this is the one where I'm just like, this, dude, like this is just, it's this is this is this is one. Um, yeah, though I have to say, since we'll be watching the kind of sci-fi made for TV version, it definitely feels a little tamer than it might've been when on the original Stargate run. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Showtime run. Yeah. 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 Again, listener, we are watching the, the show on prime. These are the, the syndicated episodes. So they're they're kind of cut down a little bit, but you know, everything's still the plot's still intact at least. Um, so yeah, next one's gonna be Hathor. Uh, the synopsis to banish gold Hathor is found in an ancient sarcophagus on Earth and takes over the SGC with hopes of raising a new army against the system lords. Okay, so she's gonna be another faction against the system lords. So we're gonna have some gold on gold fighting. Interesting. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Guest star yeah. Swan Braun as Hathor. Okay, cool. I, again, one of the things I love about this is if you know if you're thinking about Hathor was an Egyptian goddess, and so again mm-hmm. they're playing into the mythology, and so we're going to get more of these. And when you think about how many Egyptian gods there were, or Norse gods, like that was to me just an a genius move because it gives you what feels like an endless place to draw from. And then if you, you know, if you wanted to bring in things like 
Aztec gods or really any other place. Like you, you can keep bringing in new characters, new, whether they're, you know, the big bad or not. You know, one of the things that we, you know, we talk about in Discovery all the time, Star Trek Discovery, is who was going to be that season's big bad and would they be compelling? And the, how hard it is to manufacture a big bad. Well, what Stargate has figured out is, well, they tapped into a process where they can bring in an endless amount of big bads. And then when they hit one, just keep, then they've got one. It's almost like a guest starring big bad until they find someone who's really compelling. And then, you know, and so introduce Hathor and we're going to figure out if the, you know, the sexy Egyptian God is going to be the big bad for a while. Yeah, I think it's a great idea to pull from history all these mythical gods and beings, and, you know, they're all in the public domain, so you can work them into your science fiction show and just say that they're aliens, and you can play with the myths, take what you want from them, change what you want, um, attribute certain characteristics of these mythical people, of these mythical characters to alien origins. It's such a fun smart thing to do for for a sci- for a sci-fi show so i am looking forward to to <laughs> checking out hathor i i i assume she's more compelling than apothis who's not necessarily a slam dunk of a villain for me kind of kind of a dull guy sure just keep in just just keep in mind that they're going to get better to the okay. point where they get really good I heard this Anubis guy is pretty compelling. Am I right? Yeah, but just there's going to get to a point. I'm not going to spoil it for you. There's going to get to a point that that these big bads and how they introduce are like, oh my goodness, like they're you're you're gonna they're gonna feel a little less like corny and more terrifying, more well developed. Um, th- the concepts are going to get more complicated the premise is the same. Like here's the thing that they've done incredibly well. They've introduced um, Apophis and he's the big bad that we don't have to see every week. True. Right. Like we rarely see him and that seems to be working. We, we, how many, when was the last time we saw him? We see episode after episode where his impact is felt, but we don't have to deal with him. True. I think that's a good call because the, the threat of him is real, but, the presence of him is not very compelling. Um, but yeah, looking forward to Hathor. And, you know, one day, Clyde, one day we can keep dreaming. One day we'll get that gold Wraith hybrid. One day. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. There's got to be a novel out there, right? Um, all right. Thanks for listening, Clyde. Where can we find you uh, online? You can always find me at Clyde Haynes on X. And you can find me Typically on Thursdays, check out uh, Star Trek Discovery Pod, where we talk about all things Star Trek. Um, That's where I'll be. You can find me on Insta and Threads at Mike Moody Garcia. And follow the pod on Insta and Threads at Intergalactic Pod. Visit intergalacticpod.co to sub to the pod. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.